Amen. Amen, yeah. Sometimes we just have to stand and celebrate. Celebrate the fact that we're on the winning side. Um, because sometimes it's easy for us to fall into this uh, stinking thinking, if you will, right? This negative thinking where we look around and we see the world and we see the state of the world or we look around and we see our family and we see some brokenness that may be there. Or we look at our own lives and we don't find ourselves in the places we hoped and dreamed that we would be. And it's easy to fall into negativity. Um, but the scriptures remind us and our praise reminds us that we're on the winning side, that God has already won the victory, that he moves mountains, that he has already moved the greatest mountain that we could ever know, that is sin and death. He conquered the grave and death. And as we get closer to Easter, the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're reminded that the victory is already ours in Christ. We're not hoping uh, that God will accomplish something. We are celebrating what he's already done. Amen. Hey, well, good morning on this rainy, uh, we lost an hour Sunday morning. Uh, it's good to see you all here and to see you uh, pressing in to uh, worship and celebration of what God has done in our lives. This morning, we are continuing our series. We started last week. We're simply calling it More Than a Giant Slayer. Uh, this is really just a four-week series, but several people have said and as we talk uh, on Monday mornings in our staff meeting, as we talk about this uh, series, we've realized that we could have stayed a whole year in the story of David, right? Uh, there's so much in this story of David in the Bible and so many different nuances and twists and turns. Uh, and there's so much complexity in David's character. And there are so many um, known stories, but then there's a lot of kind of unknown stories, stories that aren't so popular that you might not have heard in uh, Sunday school or that you might have never heard a message on. And so we might just return to David. We're, we're going to take a break after this four-week series. So this is the second week of this series. We're, we're going to put it on pause, and we might just return to David uh, because there's so much here for us to know and to learn and to be encouraged and challenged, um, not just in David as a human, or not just in David as a hero of Scripture, um, but in God, the God who is the God of the giant slayer. Amen. Hey, well, this morning we're uh, diving into a familiar story, the story of David and Goliath, as I imagine you would have uh, guessed. Um, pray with me, and then we'll get into our message this morning. God, we give you thanks this morning that you give us this opportunity to open the Scriptures and to study them, uh, to read your Word, and to understand it. God, we know um, that although we have the knowledge, the know-how to read, understanding comes from the Lord. And so, God, I pray that you guide us into what you would have us to hear and know this morning. God, I pray that you will challenge all of us through your word, that you will help us to see how we can walk more faithfully and in integrity as followers of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that our light will so shine that others will see our good deeds and praise our Father who is in heaven. God, I pray that as we apply these scriptures and as we celebrate what you've already done through Jesus Christ, that we will actually experience the freedom that we now have as a result of what you've done through Jesus. It's in your Son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hey, well, last week we did. We began this series, and we were talking about David and the kind of classic verse that's associated with David, where it says, David was a man after God's own 
heart. And we looked at David as being a man after the God's own heart, one whose life was characterized by this, uh, this, um, this practice, if you will, or a lifestyle of seeking God, that his life was oriented or turned towards seeking God. And the Bible kind of builds this contrast, if you remember last week. Uh, we saw that, that it builds this contrast between David, who was the first king of Israel, uh, not David, Saul, Saul, who was the first king of Israel, and David. And what we saw that Saul was not a man after God's own heart, although he was what people asked for. He was, he was this big warrior. He was this impressive figure. He was handsome. He was a king like all the other nations had. He was just what the people asked for, but he wasn't a man after God's own heart. And as a result of that, right, he had cracks in his character that were easily exploited. So there were things in his heart. There was a lack of integrity. Um, there, there were other things. There was greed in his heart. And, and uh, what ends up happening is when we don't let our lives be characterized by seeking the Lord when our lives aren't turned to the Lord as our Savior and we aren't spending time before him in prayer and spending time in his word and spending time, as David likes to say, meditating on the word of the Lord. If we're not spending time fixated and focused on the Lord, um, then these cracks in our character that are in all of our character, whether it's lust or greed or whether it's um, a lack of compassion, these cracks in our character get easily exploited. But what we see is when we seek the Lord, right, it, it almost puts up a wall of protection around us. Um, that protects us for the will of the Lord, because after all, we are human. Now, last week we did say that David is human, and we're going to get around to some of his humanness uh, next week. We're going to see some of the cracks in his character that were exploited, and we're going to see what David did to repent and turn from those things and turn back to the Lord. And we're we're going to see that that's, um, that's a key thing for us to do is to turn back to the Lord and to repent and to practice repentance on a daily and regular basis basis. Now, I know this, this series is called um, um, More Than a Giant Slayer. That's what we're, we're calling this series is More Than a Giant Slayer, but I just couldn't resist telling the story of David. I mean, he is the giant slayer. He is the one who slayed the giant in the scriptures, and this is such a fantastic scripture and story. In fact, the more I read it this week, the more I realized that there's more to this story even than I could fit into a message this morning, and, and I was even seeing stuff in this scripture this morning that I didn't see earlier this week, and I just wanted to fit it all in, and I'm going to try not talk too fast because I had too much coffee this morning because I was up early and I missed an hour. Um, but, but what we see in this story with this more than a giant slayer and in this story of David and, and Goliath um, is this, this imagery that's become uh, kind of pervasive in our culture whenever we talk about maybe it's a basketball team that's defeated a team that, that was much better than they were, or maybe it's a small business that entered into a lawsuit with another one and defeated one that was much bigger or more powerful or had more money than they did. We refer to it as a story of a David against a Goliath, right? David going up against a Goliath. It's become a metaphor in our society for when an underdog overcomes insurmountable odds and accomplishes something that no one thought he could and takes on a giant. But what I want you to see in this story is this story is not inviting us into the David story. In fact, I think um, uh, if all I do this morning is inspire you to go out and slay your giants, then I have failed. Because all too often, this inspirational narrative, right, of this underdog that goes out and slays this giant only leads to good feelings and these aspirations and this, uh, this motivation to go out and do something only to get discouraged when our strategy fails against the giant, right? All too often, this story ends up being a sermon in a church where somebody preaches it and everybody's going, I'm going to slay my, right? And they name it, right? 
And then they go out of these doors and they lose sight of the very thing that God was calling them to slay or they get discouraged because they find out that it's too hard. And so we come in places like this and we look at the story of David and Goliath and we're, we're encouraged and we say, I'm going to, maybe it's sin, right? Maybe there's some sin in my life and I'm going to take it on, right? Maybe there's a sin of lust or sin of pride or sin of greed. And I've been wanting to work on this and I've heard this message. I saw how David uh, uh, conquered Goliath and I know God is going to give me the victory over my sin and we're encouraged by that. Or maybe there's some goal in your life, right? Something that you want it to accomplish. Maybe it's to go back to school or, or, or college, maybe, or start a business. Um, some, some goal that you've set for yourself, and it just feels like a giant, and you're going, no, 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 this story of David and Goliath, David slayed his giant. I'm going to slay that giant. Right? This, this story has a way of motivating us, encouraging us to go out and slay our giants. But if all I do this morning is encourage you to slay your giant, then I have failed. Because this story is not inviting us to get into the hero seat, right? This story is not inviting us to come and get into the hero seat and now be the hero of our own stories. It's not inviting us to set our goals, set our ambitions, set our plans for our life, to chart our own course, and then to pick up five smooth stones strategies for slaying the the giant and go out and do it, right? That's not what this story is doing. It's not an invitation to be David. Rather, it's an invitation to know God's or David's God. It's an invitation to know the God of the giant slayer. It's an invitation to know that the victory doesn't belong to us, that the victory isn't ours. In fact, I think we could say, um, I think we could say that if there's anything in your life that feels like a giant and you can come up with a five-step strategy to defeating it, it's probably not a giant. If there's anything in your life and you can come up with a five-step strategy, your five smooth stones like David had against Goliath, if there's anything that you can come up with a five-step strategy and you feel fairly confident if I could change this and do this and, and put some boundaries here and avoid this and shut that down and stop talking to, and, and you can overcome that giant, it's not a giant. What we see in this story of David and Goliath, it's a giant, it's a thing that no strategy, no plan, no goals, no ambition can overcome. It's something that's humanly impossible. It's impossible for us as humans. And so what we see is that the Bible's opening up this idea that there's these giants in our world, these giants in our life, and God has already won the victory. The victory is already his. And so the Bible's inviting us into this narrative, this story, if you will, to become a part of the story where God God has already won the victory, and now we're coming to know the God of the giant slayer. Now, this story, uh, the story of David and Goliath, picks up in 1 Samuel chapter 17, and we're going to be in that chapter all morning. I don't think we're going to stray from, from that chapter, chapter 17 of 1 Samuel. And the story opens up, the battle lines are already drawn. If you remember this story, if you've heard this story before, the battle lines are already drawn. David, or not David, the uh, Israelites are on one side, the Philistines are on the other side, and there's a big valley in between. Um, man, and, and, and um, even thicker than that valley is the Israelites' fear. 
Um, because the armies of both sides, Israel's army, Israel's army and the Philistine army, they've both come out on either side of this valley and they've camped out there. They've set up their army camps, their military camps. And the challenge here in this passage is, is because of this valley and because the army's on either side, one army, if one army moves first, right, if they come down in the valley, they got two things they got to do. One, they got to descend into the valley and then they got to go ascend on the other side in order to get to the army. And if the other one wants to attack, they got to descend into the valley and go. And what they will end up doing by uh, descending into the valley is they make themselves vulnerable. And so they've set up camp on either side, and neither side can figure out a strategy. Neither side can figure out how to make the first move. No one can figure out how to do a sneak attack because this valley was a riverbed and there aren't a lot of trees there. There's not a lot of cover or protection. And either way, each army is just seeing themselves being slaughtered if they come down into the valley. And so what the Philistines do is they get this giant Goliath, this impressive figure, this uh, 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 um, intimidating figure of Goliath. They get this giant that they have, and they put him in the best gear they could make, the latest war technology. He has this, this uh, coat of armor. He has these things covering his legs. He has a big shield. He has a javelin on his back. They get this huge giant Goliath, and they send him out to challenge kind of mano y mano, right, man to man, one on one, a warrior from the Israelite army. If you look at the story, you can see how the Philistines maximize the power of uh, intimidation. In, in 1 Samuel chapter 17, I'm going to pick up in verse 4. Listen to what it says, a champion. I like the way this story opens up. It says, a champion named Goliath. That means everybody had known the story of Goliath. Everyone had heard about this guy. This guy had a bit of a reputation. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was six cubits and a fan. That's about, in our terms, that's about nine feet, nine inches, almost 10 feet. And so this guy was literally a giant. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. That's about 125 pounds that this coat that he had on, this helmet that he had on his head. Some are estimating that it probably would have weighed about 30 pounds because it was solid bronze. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. That's about another 40 to 50 pounds. And so this guy has on gear that weighs more than I do, right? So this guy's basically carrying a human on his body and he's going down into this valley and he's challenging somebody. And every single day he does this and he comes right back up and he's walking in this gear like it's nothing, right? Like it's a t-shirt made of cloth. And everyone's intimidated by this. It says in verse 7, his spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. That's about 15 pounds on the end of his spear, and his shield bearer went ahead of him. This guy was geared up in the latest technology. I like the way this verse is repeating this word bronze. Bronze was the thing that everyone wanted to be proficient in working in, because if you could work well with bronze, you could make good weaponry weaponry. You could make uh, good uh, defense uh, gear, if you will, tactical gear. And so uh, we have this image, this intimidating image of Goliath in all of his tactical gear. And the Bible says he came out for 40 days straight and he challenged Israel on his own terms. 
And I love the way that this is kind of playing out because this isn't usually the view you have of war, especially not war in the ancient world. But here in this world, Goliath is challenging them on his own terms. This is almost like he's almost like setting up something like an MMA fight or a fight club of some sort where he's saying one on one, send me one guy. And if I defeat him, you're mine. If you defeat me, we're yours. But he's calling them to this one on one fight to the death. And no one is willing to go out. In fact, if you read a little bit further in that verse, in in verse 8, listen to what it says. It says, Goliath shouted out to the ranks of Israel, why do you come and line up for battle? Like, why why do you come out and line up? Like, why are you even here? He's saying, if you aren't going to do something, why are you coming out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistines said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. And the Israel, Israelite army is being shamed into silence by this one man, Goliath. Now, at this point, David's not even in the army. In fact, estimates put him somewhere around 15 years old. You had to be at least 20 to be in the army. So he wasn't 20 yet, so he wasn't in the army. David, in fact, was still tending to his father's sheep. He was doing this menial labor. In fact, we talked a little bit about last last week about him being the youngest of eight brothers. And as the youngest, sometimes he was left behind. He was forgotten. They gave him the things you give your little brother to do. Anybody that has a little brother knows those kinds of things. You just kind of leave him behind. At least that's... That's maybe my own story. <laughs> I might need to talk to somebody about that. <laughs> I am the youngest of three, not eight, but, uh, but I always felt like I was left behind, like my brother and sister went, got to go and do things, and so I'm, maybe I'm projecting that a little bit onto David, but in David's life, it was true, right? He was left behind often, and, and here he's in the field, and his father says, hey, David, go take your brother something to eat. Go take him some, some food to check on them. Bring me back assurance, actually, he says. Bring me back some assurance that they're doing okay, because they were living in a world that did not have uh, smartphones, and there was no way the brothers on the battle lines could text their father and say, hey, dad, I'm okay. The only way dad would know is they were okay if they sent someone to check. And so his dad, Jesse, was sending David um, out to the battlefield. And he was saying to David, his youngest, um, because we all know that parents love the youngest the most. Um, So he sent out his son, David, and he said, hey, stay at a distance. Don't get too close. Keep your head down. If you can't get close enough to your brothers, just throw it at them like they're some dogs. Or just throw it at them and run. Just let me know they're okay. Okay, I'm reading into the story again, but he sent out David with some food for his brothers. That didn't happen, by the way. He sent out David with some food for his brothers. And David, as he gets close to the battle line, in fact, Davis, David, Davis, David is this ambitious young man. As he gets close to the battle line, I can just see this face just lighting up. He's excited to be there where he never thought he would be. He was always left behind, and now he's shoulder to shoulder with his brothers. And he hears Goliath calling out to them and taunting them and defying the, the, uh, the army of the living God, defying the army of Israel, and he can't believe what he's hearing, right? He can't believe that he's seeing his brothers, right? 
It's one thing for the rest of the army to cower, but these are his brothers, right? These are the ones he's looked up to. These are the ones he's learned so much from. These are the ones he wanted to be like. But David is there, and he's seeing his brothers cower before this giant Goliath. And he can't believe the terror that has struck um, the army of Israel. In fact, if you look back in the scripture, if you look, uh, we'll jump down a little bit. There's a little bit that happens in this in-between, but we, you know, uh, in, in verse 32, if you jump down, it says, David said to Saul, listen to what he says. He says, let, let, David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. And so he's seeing that everyone is afraid of this guy. Everyone's losing. Everyone's kind of at this point of accepting defeat. And David says, don't accept defeat. I will go and fight him. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against the Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, probably about 15 years old, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your your servant has been keeping his father's sheep when a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock. I said, you can have that sheep. I got a bunch more. Uh Uh-uh. That's not the way this story played out. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. David is a man, right? Golly. I went after it, struck it, rescued the sheep from his mouth. When it turned on me, I'm just saying, (laughs) Just say it. All right, when it, when it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Phil, Philistine will be like one of them because he's defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul says to him, better you than me. <laughs> he says, go and the Lord be with you. You know, I, I love the way this story is playing out. Um, I love the way the story is playing out because David looks back in his past and he sees his history and sees the lion that he's fought that gave him a little bit of confidence. And he's seeing the bear that he defeated that gave him a little bit more confidence. Um, but his confidence still even, even after this. Now, <clears throat> Maybe I'm not as spiritual as David was, um, because if a lion came after me, let's just say, like, I'm, I'm walking up the street to my house, right up street, right? Let's just say I'm walking up the street to my house, and a lion comes out those woods, right? Let's just, just say, and this lion comes, and it's growling, and it's coming at me, however lions do, it's coming at me, and I grab it by the hair and slam it on the ground and pull out my little uh, 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 Swiss Army knife and, like, start chopping away at this thing. Let's just say that happens. You won't be able to tell me anything, right? My chest is going to be so far. My, my back is probably going to break. My chest is going to be so far out. I'm just saying, like, I, I mean, I'm going to grow 10 feet, 
I'm going to be walking like I'm walking on stilts because I killed a lion, I killed a bear. And what David is doing, what we're seeing happening in this story, the way this at least is playing out, is that David is not putting confidence. He's going just like Saul did. I have reason for confidence, right? I have reason to walk with my chest out. But he's not putting confidence in the things that he's done. Look back at what this says. It says, um, uh, but David said to Saul, verse 34, but David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep when a lion or bear came and carried it off from the flock. I went after it, struck it down rescued the sheep from his mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by the hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. This uncircumcised Philistine would be like one of them because he's defied the armies of the living God, the Lord who rescued me. Right? He's not saying my strength that defeated me, right? He didn't say I'm a lion whisperer, like I've learned the skill of doing that. He didn't say that because I had such might or such skill. He didn't say because of my weaponry. He didn't say because I got such quick cat-like reflexes. Like he didn't say any of that, right? He says the Lord who rescued me is going to rescue me from this uncircumcised Philistine. Now you may be looking at this text and going, what does the Bible have to do with this circumcision, uncircumcision thing? Right? What, What? This uncircumcised Philistine, and the reason why he calls them that is because the Israelites circumcised their men as a sign of them being in a covenant relationship with God. As a sign of them being on the winning team. A sign of them being on the side of the God of creation. The God who made all of this and was still in control of it. And David is saying, just like the Lord delivered me from that lion and that bear, the Lord is going to deliver me from this uncircumcised, this person that's out of the covenant relationship with God, the one who's not on God's team, the one who's standing against the God of creation. The Lord is going to deliver me from this Philistine. You see, his perspective is what boosted his confidence His perspective is what boosted his confidence. He saw that he wasn't going up against the lion and the bear, and he knew from day one that he wasn't going to be the one going up against the giant. Rather, it was the Lord that was going before him because David had this rather enlarged view of God because of what we talked about last week, that he spent so much time seeking the Lord. He spent time in in God's presence. He spent time praying to God. He spent time reading his scriptures. He spent time meditating on God. God's word. He spent time writing these psalms and poetry about the greatness of God. And we can like, um, <laughs> um, we can like, um, we, we can look at journaling and like writing psalms and poetry like it's a waste of time. But I'm saying like that's what gave David the ability to defeat the giant, right? David sitting down and reflecting on the power, the might, the majesty, the awesomeness of God as he praised God, as he thanked God, as he lamented before the Lord and expressed his helplessness and put his hope in the Lord as he repented from his sin and turned to the Lord as he did those uh, practices we talked about last week that characterized a life that... Um, that seeks the Lord, as David did that, he had this enlarged view of God. And what we see in Scripture over and over again is the bigger our view of God is, the smaller our giants will appear. The bigger our view of God, the smaller our giants will appear. You see, David had this big view of God, and he knew that God was able to deliver him from this giant. 
I kind of imagine David going, oh, that's a rather small giant. <laughs> right? The thing that everyone else is looking at and it's causing them to tremble. The thing that others are saying is impossible. David would have looked at and gone, oh, that's a rather small giant. This story makes me ask the question, um, is your God too small? Is my God too small? Is your view of God too small? Now, that is a little bit of a trick question um, because the Bible does talk about God being beyond our comprehension beyond our ability to understand. So maybe we'll make this a little bit more practical. Do you find yourself looking at the faith of others and saying, I could never do that? Or feeling like God is maybe tugging at your heart in a certain direction to do something that's outside of your comfort zone, and and you're going, I could never see myself doing that. I'm just not able. I'm not the one. Maybe if I was wired a little bit differently, I could do it, but I just don't know if I'm equipped for that. You see, what David had was his heart that was totally open to what God was able to do. His God wasn't too small, and so when he sees the giant, he goes, that's a small giant. I can do that. And I wonder if, I wonder how our lives would be different if we approached life with that perspective. If we approached it with the perspective that if God calls me to it, he's going to see me through it. If God calls me for it, he's going to make a way. I can do that. I am confident, not in myself, not in my skills, not in my ability, but I'm confident in the Lord, the God of the giant slayer, the God who brought down Goliath. And so the question I think for us is, is your view of God too small? And there are some things that I think are notorious for shrinking our view of God. And part, some of this is just part of our human nature. But we got to be aware of these things because they'll come after our God, right, all the time. And they'll shrink what, who God is and what God wants to do. Because when God calls us, right, God calls us to do things that only God can do through us, right? God doesn't call us and say, hey, you're gifted at well, why don't you just go do that because you could do that without me? Or God doesn't call you and say, hey, you're good at it. Well, why don't you just go do that because you could do that without me. I'm just, I'm just kind of the sending agent. Like, that's not what God is doing. God, when God calls us, he calls us to do what only God can do through us. And so if we're doing only what only we could do, even if it's hard for us to do, but if we're doing only what we could do, then we're probably stepping outside of God's will. God wants to do things that only he can do in our lives and through us. And so there's three things, at least, um, that are notorious for shrinking our view of God. And I want you to see these things. The first one, and all of them are something that's common. None of them's going to surprise you. The first one is fear. Fear is a defense mechanism, right? Fear is a defense mechanism that has a way of 
um, of, of causing us to uh, mitigate risk and avoid situations that cause us um, or potentially cause us pain, right? So uh, fear, is, um, we, fear, fear is human, right? Um, because if I wasn't afraid of some stuff, I would have done some dumb stuff. I'm just saying. Um, and, I, and I do work hard to be fearless, and I find myself doing more and more dumb stuff. Uh, when I do that. And so you got to be careful with this fear thing. Like we were wired for fear because if we didn't have fear, we, we just, like we, we would live fearless and we put our lives at more risk. It's just like I was reading a, um, a story recently. They were talking about bicycle helmets. I do believe you should wear a, bi- a helmet whenever you go out and ride a bicycle. Um, because my mommy said so. Um, uh, I do believe you should wear a helmet every time you go out and ride a bicycle. Um, but there's these, 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 um, these statistics that say that people that wear helmets when they ride bicycles get in more accidents. In fact, they lose their lives more because it takes away some of the fear, right? If you have a helmet on, like, like if, if you're on a busy highway and you don't have a helmet on, you're probably going to stay on the side, as close to the side. If cars get a little crazy, you might get in the grass. You may be on the sidewalk. But people throw these helmets on, and they feel like helmets are going to protect them from a car. And then they go weaving in and out of traffic and through the street. They don't stop at stop signs, all this kind of craziness. And they end up losing their lives or getting into serious accidents because they're more fearless. So God has given us fear to keep us from doing stupid things. It guards us. It defends us. It is a defense mechanism. But here's the deal with fear. If we aren't careful, fear will reduce or kill, if you will, our confidence, and it will guard us from God's will. It will guard us, it will defend us against God's own will for our lives. We'll find ourselves where God is calling us and saying, hey, I want you to go and, and we're going, God, I can't, right? It is shrinking our view of God. It is making our God too small. And what we see in the story of David, if you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 17, where he declares the magnitude of God to the giant Goliath. Listen, this is when he goes out to fight Goliath. In verse 45, look at what it says. It says, David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcass of the Philistine army to the bird and the wild animals. He's getting kind of gruesome here. And the whole world will know there is a God in Israel. He's declaring the magnitude and the power and the awesome of God to his giant. He's defeating fear by declaring how awesome God is. And this passage is challenging us not to constantly tell God how big our giants are, right? To go before God and say, my giant is just too big, but to tell our giants how big our God is and declare to our giants the victory of God and defeat fear by dwelling on the magnitude and the awesomeness of our God. So the first thing I wanted you to see that often shrinks our God, it's notorious for this, is fear. Second thing is our past. Because our past often produces these feelings of um, inadequacy, uh, inability, and in some cases, disqualification. In fact, I, I did this experiment once, and I, I didn't, 
I'll be totally transparent. I didn't come up with it on my own. I heard it, and I figured out, give it a shot, because I, I actually didn't believe it would work out the way the person said it would. But I was doing chapel at this school. It was a Christian school, and so they had this chapel service, and they asked me to come and speak to some kids, because after all, that is my expertise. Um, <laughs> just saying. Just saying. Uh, they asked me to come and speak to these kids. And so one of the things I did at chapel is that and they, were, they were broken down into different grade levels. And so it was elementary, middle school, and high school. And to the, to the elementary school kids, I, I get up there and I say, who's the fastest in this room? Right? Who's the fastest? Every hand in the room goes up. Right? Everyone's the fastest. Right? Even like uh, right there. Everyone in the room is fastest. Who's the best at, at, uh, at playing basketball in this room? Every hand, went, even the boy that knew he didn't have the strength to even make the ball reach the, the, the goal. Right? He, was the, he was the best, right? Who's the smartest in this room? Everybody's hand went up, right? Um, I got to middle school and did the same questions, right? Who's the fastest in this room? There were, there were a few less hands, right? There are some hands still, probably too many to be realistic. A lot of people hadn't faced reality. Um, but a bunch of hands went up, but a few more stayed down. Same questions. Every, every, with each one, fewer hands went up. Now I got to high school. And I said, who's the fastest in this room? Oh, he is, he is, he is. Everybody's pointing at, and it's like between two guys. Like everybody's identified the two. They're probably close to fastest. In fact, if they raced each other, one might win one day and one might win on the next, right? That was just kind of the way it was. And who's the best at playing basketball? Oh, he is. Look how tall he is. Look how tall he is. He's the best. He's the best. And, and who's the smartest in this room? And it was kind of like, she. <laughs> no, yeah, what? that wasn't really cool in, in high school. Uh, she is. And this uh, little girl in the corner is just like, me. Right? And, um, and, and the question is like, what happens? Right? What happens between kindergarten and high school? Right? People began to tell us that we can't. Right? People began to tell us that we're inadequate. People began to point out our flaws. We began to see for ourselves, right? I'm just not that good at basketball. We began to convince ourselves that there's things that we can do and there's things that we can't do. And as adults, our past speaks into our future. Our past often prevents us from doing the things that God is calling us to because after all, I'm just not that guy or I'm not that woman. I'm not the one to do that. God didn't wire me me that way. I can't see myself doing it. And our past begins to shrink our God who's saying to us, I didn't call you to do it. I wanted to use you. And God's saying, I wanted to do it myself. I was just going to use you. I won't take credit for this one either. There's a billboard in Atlanta, a pastor with a billboard in Atlanta. And his billboard says, um, your past doesn't define you. It prepares you. <laughs> your past doesn't define you. Um, it, it prepares you. Don't let what you've learned that you're able to do and learn that you're not able to do prevent you from doing what God is calling you to do. Third thing I want you to see that often shrinks our view of God is, is pride. And I'll be honest, I, um, I feel like I'm talking about pride a lot these days. And uh, I read an article some years back um, that said that when a pastor or leader talks about something a lot, that's probably something that they struggle with. <laughs> In fact, sometimes you find that someone harps on something and then, you know, 
they're making everybody else feel guilty, and then, you know, it comes out uh, that it's something they struggle with. And so I, um, kind of the, the self-conscious part of me wanted to say, to leave this, this third point out. Um, but, man, I'll say, yeah, pride is something that I struggle with. And I think pride is more pervasive than we give it credit for. And it's not this pride of like, you know, I'm the greatest, I'm the greatest. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm a little self-aware. Um, it's not that kind of pride, but it's this kind of pride that creeps into our lives that causes us to look within, look around, all before we ever think of looking up. Because I can deal with this issue in my relationship. I just need to tell her what she needs to do. <laughs> or I can, for me, there's times that I find myself, because I do this every single week, I sit down on Monday morning, and I'm like, what am I going to preach? And I'm like, I can write this message. I've read this scripture a million times. I've written however many sermons I've written in 15 or 10 or however many years I've been preaching. Right? I've done this before. I, why do I need to spend time before the Lord? Or I've dealt with conflicts on my job. I know how to handle that. I've read all the leadership books. I've learned how to handle conflicts. Why do I need to pray before I have this discussion? Why do I need to seek the Lord's guidance? That's pride. Anytime that we're tempted to look within, look around at friends and ask for their advice, all before we look up, we're putting ourselves we're putting other people before we're putting God. David could have gone, I fought lion, I fought a bear. I've got this. He didn't do that. He looked up and said, God is able to do this. Not me, but God is. I think this passage is challenging us to repent of pride in our lives to say to God that I won't settle for what only I can do. I want to do what only you can do through me. You know, the way the story ends, David uh, takes up five smooth stones, the Bible says. And he goes down to the valley. And he has this slingshot, not like a rubber band slingshot, but more like a leather strap with a pouch on it. And he begins to swing it around. And he lets the stone fly. And the first stone hits the giant. And he falls and he dies. And just like that, the giant is defeated. It's easy for us to look back at this story and to say that God is calling me to be the giant slayer. And I'm going to drag my God with me onto the battlefield. And he's going to give me victory over my enemies. But when we get to the end of the story, which is not in the book of Samuel, but is in the whole Bible, when we get to the end of the story, into the New Testament, we see that God has already defeated our 
enemies because not David, Jesus went onto the battlefield against sin and death, the greatest enemy known to man. He didn't need five smooth stones. All he needed was his body, and he laid it down, and he defeated sin and death to set us free. That we could live with confidence. The confidence not of knowing that we're dragging our God onto the battlefield to fight our battles for us. But the confidence of knowing that our God has gone before us and that the victory is already his. You know, this Sunday, like every Sunday, we share in a time of communion where we come to these tables. And these tables remind us that Jesus died for our sins as we celebrate communion on these tables. There's prepared bread and juice that represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And we come to these tables, and maybe there's a giant that's staring at us in our face. And his armor is intimidating. And it's causing fear to creep up. And we have to remind ourselves to put fear in its place. Or maybe our past is starting to creep in and we're having to remind our past that it doesn't define us. Rather, it's prepared me for this. Or maybe that pride is starting to come in and that giant staring me in my face and I'm going, I got this. I don't need to involve God in this. I've got this. You know, we come to these tables, and the scriptures are challenging us to stare our giant in its face and to say to our giant, you are no match for the living God. You've already been defeated. Now I walk in victory. Victory. 